0: Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spinoff from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month on motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, steering clear of the law. And a few listener-generated topics as well, and a bunch of other things while we sit around the virtual Raw campfire. But before we get going, I want to give a shout-out to some people that have helped the show incredibly this past month with a support of $50 or more. Kevin Ferriter, Robert Blue... Tim Robertson, Brian Connolly, and Gabrielle Gaducci. All of you, thank you very much. It means a great deal to us at Adventure Rider Radio. Remember, support of $50 or more gets your name on this show like I just did right now. And we would love your support on our Patreon account. That's a monthly support. Drop our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com, and click on support. This episode of RAW is supported by freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversations and home to adventure space a base camp for adventure motorcyclists in the uk or visiting the uk now here we go arr raw for november 2019 season four From the Canoe West Media Studio, back once again on the shores of Vancouver Island, we are gathered around the virtual campfire for another session of ARR Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today the virtual roundtable, afforded through the magic of the internet, I'm joined by my esteemed regular Overland co-host. Now, really, normally, each month, we've got Sam Manicom, we've got Grant Johnson, Graham Field, Brian Ricks, and Shirley Hardy Ricks, and myself... Jim Martin. And today we're kind of running a little late because both Shirley and Brian are away. Now, apparently they're attending some sort of annual state sheep rodeo, something they do each year, which I don't know. I think it's much like a regular rodeo, except they they ride sheep instead of horses and steers. Sam, have you ever been to one of these sheep rodeos? You've traveled a lot.
1: No, I haven't, but done it, I've obviously missed out. <laughs> you just conjured up this wonderful image.
0: <laughs> well, that, that's what I think they're at anyway. So we'll just, we'll just imagine them riding the sheep, and I'm sure they're going to have a, a great time doing that. Um, but, I think
2: they take their own wellies with them. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: so, Sam, are, are you um, in the, the rainy UK right now?
1: I certainly am, and rainy is the word. It's pitch black outside, and it is hissing down. Um, if I wasn't feeling incredibly lazy and actually warm and comfortable sitting at my desk here, um, I would take the microphone over to the window so you could hear how heavily it's falling. But hey, it's November. It's England. That's fine. The snow's coming any minute. No, I didn't just say that. <laughs> Snow stops me riding.
0: But but you you are riding your bike all winter, aren't you?
1: Yeah, of course. Because that's Absolutely. all you have. Absolutely, it's that's sh- Libby, and in, in the UK, she's my only means of transport, unless we talk about my bicycle. Birgit does lend me her car from time to time when I've got a big show on Ooh. so that I can get all of the books and so on there, but that's about it. And she always lends it to me very nervously because, well, she knows I don't drive very often.
0: I didn't realize that you even drove a car. I didn't know you had a car license.
1: Oh, yeah, I certainly do. Um, my my first car, do um, you know, I've had various cars over the years, including a Citroen 2CV, which I loved. Um, you know, one of these really weird little things with... Um, Headlights that stick out like um, eyeballs on stalks and this windback canvas roof and all of the rest of it. And I've had an MGB sports car and yeah, various other things, Um, including a a Ford Fiesta called Dodgem because my sister had it first. And she pretty much treated it as a Dodgem car when she was parking. Um, The thing was covered in dents and dings and scrapes. It was fun.
0: Sounds like it's all luxury vehicles you've been used to. I didn't realize that. Um, also with us, we have Graham Field. Who we already heard there in Bulgaria. Graham, are you looking at snow?
2: No, we haven't. I, I don't really like to open the show talking about weather, but it is so uncharacteristic I've been back here for six weeks now. Every single day has been 20 degrees. We've had hardly any rain in three months. We haven't had any mains water in three and a half weeks. The well ran dry. And it's lovely on one hand because you can go riding every day, but it's getting a little bit serious now. You start thinking about, you know, what people say about climate change. You start thinking about how this mass migration could happen due to intense water shortages. Because pretty soon I'm going to need a shower and I'm going to have to migrate to someone who's got water.
0: (laughs) It's a good thing you're used to traveling the way you do because you can go for months without a shower and it doesn't bother you. (laughs) It's not that high on the
2: priority list. (laughs) (laughs)
0: What are you doing for water right now?
2: Well, I have got a well and I've got a pump, uh, which does go wrong from time to time. The, The water stopped coming through. And I went and had a look. And um, did the usual things I do at the pump, still wasn't getting any water through. About the third time I pulled the hose out. I thought, hang on a minute, it's dry. And so I'd forgotten how deep my well is. So I got a big rock, tied it to a bit of rope, dropped it till I till it stopped taking the rope. So it's eight and a half meters deep, my well. And um, my hose was only about 7.2 metres deep. So the water level had gone below it. So I cut off a bit of garden hose, don't need a garden hose when there's no mains water, spliced it on the end of my pump hose, and I'm now using my last metre of water. So flushing the toilet once a day and just being really conservative. No baths, forget baths, you know, barely a shower, washing up as as, as, as conservatively as possible. And... Um, Really, because when that's it, that's it, and there is still no rain forecast. So very uncharacteristic weather, and uh, and we just got a letter, uh, an email from the from the water company. Because you see, we don't have a reservoir; it just takes it from the river, and. When we have a lot of rain, we don't have water because it blocks all the filters because the river is raging. And when we haven't had any rain, we don't have any water because the river is so low and dry. And we just had a letter from the water company and they said, you will in your little village, you will get water every Tuesday and every Sunday for eight hours a day. We got that email yesterday when it was Tuesday. No water.
1: <laughs> I've got this wonderful image, Graham, of there being a, a roaring black market trade in wet wipes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey let's 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 bring in grant johnson who is also um, on the west coast with me only further down grant good evening
3: good evening everyone i'm having a relaxing evening here i've just been organizing a few things and getting some events open that's about it nothing too exciting here we've had the driest november on record for the lower mainland which is amazing but uh, I think the weather's changed considerably because it's forecasting rain for the next week solid. And that's as far forward as the forecast goes. So we're mm-hmm. back to normal November Vancouver rain.
0: I almost never look at the forecast. I really don't, especially on the coast. I find it it's just... Well, first of all, it's depressing, <laughs> but second of all, it's often wrong. You know, you look at it for five days in advance and you see it's going to be rain every day, but then you know that those days are going to have some clear times where it's not clear like sunny, but no rain where you can actually get out. Sorry, Graham, I know we're probably making you just you drool here when you're talking about all our rain here, but we've got tons. Yeah,
3: generally no shortage here for sure. Vancouver is known as the place that's had 40 days and 40 nights of nonstop rain more than once.
0: mm Graham, I, I, I'm very curious about this water situation. So there, there's no reservoir; they're drawn from the river. Is there is there any sort of contingency plan? I mean,
2: well, this isn't the first time it's happened. This uh, last year we had water shortages right up until uh, until Christmas time. I mean, I'm looking out the window now. We've got a beautiful orange sky. It's just getting light. All the roses are out and there's still new, new, new rose buds coming out. Because it, we're having such a dry and prolonged autumn, we've got these gorgeous autumn colours that are just just carrying on and on and on. So we've got all these different shades and it, it's with the trees up, some trees are losing their leaves, but not all of them. And <laughs> My mother's going to hate this if she listens, but my mother does sometimes say things which Aren't quite always correct, and I was telling her i I'm talking to her the other day. I was telling her about how prolonged autumn and how beautiful it was, and she said, "Well, the thing about the climate in Bulgaria is it lasts all year long."
1: <laughs> oh, lovely! Yeah.
0: I'm not laughing at you mother; I'm Mom. laughing at you actually telling that story because I know your mom's going to listen to this.
1: Absolutely. You're in, you're in trouble, son. <laughs> Hey, listen, Graham, what, what about things like um, forest fires and things like that? Because, I mean, Bulgaria has an awful lot of forests, isn't it? I mean, isn't there a huge risk now?
2: I suppose there is a huge risk. Uh, we ha- there's, there's no evidence of it where I'm looking right now. And I must admit, I don't watch the news. Uh, and I think I probably would have heard about it because I would have seen posts from my Bulgarian Facebook friends. But the risk has got to be huge. Um, I mean... Uh, you don't i mean it's cold at night so people sometimes light fires at night you see a bit of um, smoke coming out the chimneys uh, but uh, yeah i guess it is a, a huge risk um but and, and also if it were to occur there's no water to put the fire out
0: well i'm thinking house fires as well
2: yeah i mean i, I could drain the hot tub but only by siphoning it that's not going to work is it? <laughs> <laughs> it
0: could be a lot of work
2: Yeah, it's a water shortage. No one's got any water grace sitting in his hot tub.
0: (laughs) Well, let's get away from that weather and that 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 thing that's changing out there for our weather and get into talking about motorcycles. we got a um, a question from a listener named Jay Benson. And, uh, and Jay wrote that, given that I, I do not particularly want to go off-road for any great distance, and certainly not mud plugging, is there any advantage of having the GS-style bike over a roadster? He says he notices that some people are or someone is covering a route from Vladivostok through to Mongolia and the stands on a, on a GSX-R600 with knobbies on it. Um, I think we've all, and I sort of know where this question is going, but I, th- I thought we should cover it anyway, because it's interesting that this question still comes up of um, really what it is is saying what is a what is the perfect bike but i think more in particular it's that gs style bike because that is the poster child isn't it that's our poster child for adventure motorcycling is that not necessarily i'm not going to say gs i'm not going to say bmw but i'm saying that that look that big bike that on steroids with knobby tires Yeah, it's sad, isn't it?
3: (laughs) It's very frustrating. I get asked this all the time. You know, what would you take around the world? Blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on. Um, It really, as always, doesn't matter. It's what you like, what you prefer, what works for you. And you decide where you want to go and you your choice of bike may determine where you're going to go. I mean, if you're a young guy, you might want to take a 650 and go into the bush and do some really gnarly back roads and have great fun and doing dirty stuff. On the other hand, you might be a little older and more relaxed, and you might want to go around the world on your Goldwing, or as Peter and Kay Forwood did on the Harley that they happen to have. I mean, if, if they can go around the world on a bog-standard Harley Glide, and they went to 197 countries. That's every country in the world. If they can do it on that, you can do it on anything. You know, I know people have gone around the world on, uh, on Goldwings. Emilio Scotto went around the world and did 100 and something countries on a Goldwing. People from Japan do, do it on uh, step through 90s all the time. It's their favorite bike. They run forever and ever. They're cheap. They can pick it up and carry it over problems. It, it doesn't matter what you're riding. Choose your route according to what you ride and what you prefer and what you like and what you're comfortable on. You know, you want to go around the world on a cruiser. That's okay. Sure.
0: If you sort of peel back that answer and sort of look at it a little more in depth, it has to do with kind of what people are expecting, doesn't it? Because he's saying that he's not planning on doing, you know, particularly any any mud plugging, he says, um, you know, like going in some real rough stuff. And and doesn't doesn't that really determine what bike? I know there's extremes. I know there's people riding the Gixers, um, you know, with, with the knobby tires front and rear. That's sort of like a, a personal, you know, bike choice. Uh, uh, maybe it's to, I don't know, for a challenge or, or whatever the case is. But it has more to do, doesn't it, I'm asking you, to to do with where you want to ride.
3: Yeah, it's all about what you see as your trip. If you see your trip as being um, going to the remote villages and the dirty roads and and all that kind of stuff, then that's your trip and you should pick the appropriate bike. Don't do that on a cruiser. Buy an appropriate motorcycle to do the job of what you see your trip as looking like. Um, Having said that, I will say that the GS style – is very useful to to start out with because no matter where you end up, it still kind of works okay. It's not perfect at anything. I mean, really not perfect at anything, but it's pretty darn good. So there is some advantage to taking that style of bike because you know it'll always work. And you get on some really bumpy, nasty, gnarly back roads, and it may be perfectly paved. But a GS with long travel suspension is great as opposed to a sport bike with three inches of rock hard suspension, which is going to send you into the stratosphere every time you hit a bump. So, I mean, there, there's pluses and minuses to everything, but it really comes down to what do you think your trip looks like and buy accordingly.
1: I'm going to add to, um, to Grant's list of, of people um, who have been around the world on um, different types of bikes. I mean, you've got Bruce Smart who rode um, a GSX-R 1000 around the world. You've got Nathan Millwood with his 105cc Australian postie bike. Of course, the first motorcycle to be ridden around the world was um, a Henderson in 1913. That was by um, Carl Stearns Clancy. Ted Simon, of course, with his 500cc road bike. My partner, Birgit, she rode a a 1972 BMW R60-5 road bike, and she took everywhere that I made my R80GS go. There's a a Greek couple going around the world, two up on a Vespa scooter at the moment. Um, They're doing some really hardcore off-roading on this thing too. That's Sturgis and that Alexandria. And and so it goes on. And there's Nick Sanders as well, who... um, for those who haven't heard, I mean, he did it um, multiple times around the world on a Yamaha R1. He's just been awarded an MBE. Um, yeah, how cool services. is that? Yeah, we for services to MBE. endurance motorcycling and, and uh, just endurance cycling and motorcycling. And yeah, I mean, I know there are quite a lot of people that um, aren't interested in speed records, but what an achievement. How many other people from our motorcycling world have, have achieved something like that?
2: I think that's spectacular. I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of sort of hyped up journeys, and there's a lot of wannabes. And I think Nick Sanders puts it all into perspective. He has now been recognised. By the Queen, I think that's a pretty cool accolade wow. to have. Yeah,
0: <laughs> really. What do you mean recognized?
2: Well, an MBE yeah. is member of the British MBE is a member of the British Empire. The next one up is an OBE that sort of entertains. If you if you are outstanding in your field, it is recognized by the British Empire, and you get a, a very prestigious medal. You meet the Queen, and uh, and then you get to. I mean, there's a panya badge we don't all have.
0: <laughs> well, wait, you you have to you have to be from England though to get this. Or oh, the
2: Commonwealth probably. You, Commonwealth. You, it might be entitled to it in part of the Commonwealth, you know, outstanding broadcasting techniques or something. Do you think you could mention that the next time you're, you're over to see the Queen? I haven't been for a while, but next, next garden party I get invited to, I will drop name. I appreciate now. that. That'd be good. I'm
1: afraid she won't, she doesn't talk to me after I tried to sell Buckingham Palace to get the money together to go traveling. But, you know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, you mentioned the Henderson, Sam, that bike in itself would be a completely different experience to anything that's available now. So I think the thing is that I wanted to say here was that because this is someone who who maybe you know hasn't been into it for a long time, Jay, or or maybe doesn't you know um, you know hasn't hasn't done a lot of research on whatever the case is. For the people that are new at it, even for motorcycle travel or even riding a motorcycle, yeah, I think you have to understand the limitations of certain bikes and ride accordingly. Because we can all list off people that have done incredible things on bikes, and you know they're motivated by different things, and that's what I was sort of trying to say earlier, but. There are limitations to bikes. So, I mean, if you're going to take a street bike, you've got to realize that when you come to those dirt sections, it's going to be a problem or you're going to avoid them, you know? So it is going to shape what your trip is all about.
3: Having having said that, you get uh, Peter and Kay on the Harley and Jacques Lucason on his R1 going through places in Central Africa that are ridiculous by any standards and nobody but people on bicycles are there. And here's these lunatics on motorcycles That are going through where there isn't even any fuel. You can do it on anything. It's just harder. Mm -hmm. And and some people, not everybody can.
0: It's not everybody can. It's the same as when we talk about going traveling. Not everybody can go travel. You know, it's if you don't have the time or the money. I mean, there's certain things in people's lives that, that make it so they can't actually go so I mean, not everybody can do that, you know. Um, and Peter and Kay, they they obviously were very good with doing their own repairs and getting their heavy bike through and, and dealing with the, the any sort of problems they would had with that particular bike. Jacques Lukinson, I mean, he's he's you know he's definitely an outlier. Uh, there's no doubt as far as travel and and using that style bike for what he does. So that's what I'm saying. If if you're new to this, you do have to understand those those are extremes. Those are people who are well, they know what they're doing. The
2: other yeah. side of that, um, just just. Read two books in a row. Um, the, the first one was Antonia Bolingbroke Kent, A Short Ride in the Jungle, where she took a pink Honda Cub on the <laughs> Ho Chi Minh Trail uh, through Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. Now, she didn't have any mechanical knowledge. She was on dirt, muddy roads right out there, literally in the jungle. Uh, and a girl on her own. She managed to do it. Sometimes she ran out of petrol, sometimes there were mechanical problems which were beyond her capabilities or her knowledge. So she still managed it. And I'm currently reading um, a book called uh, From Here to Infinity by a guy called Stephen Holmes. And he took a five, a 50-year-old Norton 500 to follow the journey that Che Guevara took when he did the, the motorcycle diaries. And and he again had no mechanical knowledge. They took bikes that they barely that they'd ridden for like ten minutes before they left the UK. Shipped them off to Buenos Aires, and there started the journey. So, again, it's it's still possible. You adjust, I think, your trip to the speed, the capacity, the knowledge of, that you have with with your bike. But it doesn't make it impossible. It it probably makes it more exciting. Certainly more
3: affordable. I think I it, it's very important to, to understand that the, the way to get around problems is to, A, not have a schedule, and B, just be willing to do whatever it takes to figure out the problem. You will always find there's somebody around to help. You will always figure out a way to deal with the problem, whatever it may be. There's always a solution. It isn't necessarily call up the AA and have your bike picked up at the side of the road by a nice um, tow truck and haul down to the fancy correct dealership. It's, there may be some pretty strange and interesting ways of doing things, but there's always a way to solve a problem. Somebody will always come along. There's always people out there. There's always trucks out there to haul you out, whatever. You will solve the problem. You just have to be willing to take the time to relax, think about the issue and how am I gonna deal with this and do it in a way that's not panicky and oh my God, my trip's ruined and I'm gonna die. Thinking.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's where a of lot of the adventure comes from, isn't it? It's sure, it's right. when things like this happen and you, you're just open to fate and and to, to being calm and practical and adaptable. And that is one of the real joys um, about long distance travel as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I think for Jay, um, one of the things that I would say is it makes sense to ride a bike that you feel comfortable on because it's going to be your friend, your companion for so much of the time. If you can pick it up on your own, then that's a major bonus. Preferably go for one that's got a proven track record for reliability, and also one that gives you pretty good fuel consumption. Um, but the point is, whatever bike you're on, it's gonna dictate what the possibilities are. And I think that if you're gonna take um, a bog-standard road-type bike, then, and you're gonna do a longer overlanding type trip, then you're probably gonna be looking at things like um, beefing up the rear shock and the fork springs. Um, you, you're unlikely to find um, suitable luggage racks. So you'll probably be designing your own with a mate, and that's going to be an adventure in itself. You'll be probably sourcing or making an engine bash plate because normal roads in many parts of the world have potholes too. It's not just off-road that you need to have bash plates. And, of course, getting your bike over doorsteps into hotels and courtyards and sliding over a bash plate is often um, part of what is involved. And you're going to be looking at your bike in in a way that other people – when they're just using it as a straight road bike, wouldn't do. So in other words, you're gonna be looking at parts of the bike that you might decide needs protection. Um, things that are gonna be a pain in the backside to fix when you're out on the road or getting spare parts for. And once you've, you've done all of this reviewing, then you're gonna have the the interesting fun of um, making or having made protection bars. I mean, I'm not talking about huge, great, big, beefy things, but you know, just something to protect the the more vulnerable parts of your bike. Um, those sorts of things. And if you enjoy mucking in with those sorts of things, you enjoy the challenge, then it's part of the journey of discovery, isn't it? Getting you bike fitted out. And I, I guess I'm kind of talking about these because that's exactly the sort of things that we went through when we were getting Birgit's um, R60 slash 5 out. What do you mean? Well, well she took this bog standards um, 1972 road bike and we went through it, and she beefed up the fork springs, she beefed up the uh, the rear shock, she built luggage racks for it, and so on and so on, until she made this uh, this basic road bike into something that would go comfortably, um, pretty much anywhere. And yeah, okay, it was much harder to ride um, on on the really gnarly dirt bits of road, but it still did it. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 just a, a different set of challenges than being able to go to a shop where. Um, you've got a bike that's set up ready for it and all of the accessories are just, well, yeah, I'll have that one and I'll strap it on. It's part of the fun. It's it's where you're using your imagination.
2: And, you know, also, I the the KLR I've got in the in America, uh, which I haven't seen for nearly five years now, uh, that, that had been, when I bought it, it was a new bike, but it was a mess. It had been dropped on both sides. All the plastic was broken. It was a newer model, second generation, so it had a, a lot of plastic on it. Now, it was a very... Uh, I hardly had him ready for this trip to go down to Mexico. It came with some soft panniers and uh, I used them and they were held together with safety pins because the zips were broken. And uh, I may cut out um, the big sort of gallon milk containers around the handlebars, so I sort of had handlebar muffs for the freezing part of the journey. This isn't because uh, I knew when I got down to Texas and the and the past the Rio Grande, it was gonna things are gonna warm up. I wasn't about to invest any money in, in anything more than <laughs> in a couple of gallons of milk, and 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 so. You, the improvisation you don't have to be an engineer i am not you can see any any of my moderate mo- modifications but It's just about, you know, this is what I need. How can I do this? If you're going to be going through a rough bit of terrain, you don't have to build your own engine engine plate. You can cable tie a bit of plywood onto the the bottom of your bike. There are ways to do it beyond the catalogues, beyond the the must-haves, because you've always got to remember that people did this way, way back and they they improvised with the most with the most ridiculous things last was it last summer a friend of mine Sharon Faith came through and she was on a bike borrowed bike and it had been lowered for the person who actually owned it she was having real problems uh, discomfort with her legs on the foot pegs so I'm kind of embarrassed about this, but we got a stick. We got a, 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 a branch and I put it through the frame and I cable tied to the frame. And now she's got cruising pegs. And it just meant that she had somewhere else to put her legs when um, when she wasn't sort of when she was doing long mile, mile riding. And it worked. It was functional. It cost the price of two cable ties, which is still only for shame.
0: Did you watch the Flintstones when you were a kid? like like the 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 plywood skid plate now i assume that's something they did back in the caveman days i think because i haven't seen that before grant have you seen that
3: not plywood i haven't but it's it's pretty easy to go to any metal shop and say i need a piece of metal that fits underneath here and can you bend it a bit so it's got a bit of curve at the front Mm. and then you can zip tie it on or get a couple of U-clamps, whatever. It's not hard to make a basic skid pan for most bikes.
0: I like the plywood idea. As a matter of fact, I I, I'm going to let the – just, just between us, my pannier holders, I'll call them that because it's not really really a luggage rack, is two pieces of plywood and they're on some aluminum brackets. And, and there's a story behind this. The reason this happened is because when I bought the bike – I wanted to ride it immediately and I had nothing uh, as far as luggage racks. And um, anyway, so I I looked around the shop and I had some pieces of aluminum. So I quickly just bent up a fast little bracket and I thought, okay, I need something bigger on this because I've got soft panniers going to sit on it. I cut out a piece of plywood. I just sprayed a little black paint on it so you couldn't see it and it wouldn't look too stupid. Sprayed my aluminum brackets black, put it on and now seven years down the road, it's still on my bike. And I and I think when I meet people and they look at it, you see So I can always tell because people look at my bike and then they'll sort of take another look and they'll sort of duck their head around and go, yeah, it's plywood. And I know you don't see many bikes with plywood luggage racks, but it works.
2: Yeah, cool. bring, bring carpentry back into adventure biking. That's what I say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I really like the Heath Robinson adaptions that have got done to my bike over the years. It is... The, the, the lateral, lateral thinking, the sideways, it is, it is using imagination and it is using materials that are to hand. Um, it's it's part of the fun, isn't it?
0: It is, I think. You know, it's, it's one thing, I don't want to go off on a, on a tangent here, but it's one thing that I find nowadays, everything being computer designed... That um, everyone just goes out and buys the parts, whereas you only go back a few years, and we all know this, that you used to make your parts. I mean, you really didn't buy very much, and I've, I've probably said this before, but I've sort of missed those times, you know, because it was acceptable to strap a piece of wood across to make a couple of foot pegs. Well, maybe barely, but, but you know, those <laughs> type sort of things. Or, or like when, when, Graham, I think you took your, I don't know, you took a deep fryer or something and put over your headlight, the, the deep fryer basket or something to protect your headlight. That's st- That stuff was stuff you did because there was nothing else there. Or was I
2: admire people who look at something and can see it in a completely different light, you know, walking through a DIY shop and they see, for example, a friend of mine, I pitched his idea, they see a, a, a toilet brush and toilet brush holder. And what they see is the chrome cylindrical shape and think, well, I could carry my tools in that. <laughs> I think that's a marvellous um, quality to have to be able to see the ability that something has to be other than what it was designed for.
1: Mm hmm. When we were making Birgit's luggage rack um, for her R60-5, um, we were walking past a skip and there was a shopping trolley in it that had um, been smashed up. And we thought, oh, hmm. It's good level so there. <laughs> we, absolutely. So we zipped off and we got ourselves um, a saw and uh, we pinched parts of this shopping trolley and Birgit's luggage rack, parts of it are made out of an old shopping trolley.
0: Very nice. And still on her on her bike?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah too great. right.
0: That's the neat thing about uh,
3: quickie fixes like Jim's plywood parts. You do a quickie fix and you'll fit, make it better later. Now you won't.
0: Yeah, I know. Permanent. <laughs> <laughs> this is so funny. I whipped that together so fast in the shop. And I got to ride because that's what it was all about. But yeah. Exactly. yeah
3: it, it and it good. continues to work. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's like when I bought my bike in 86, um, the R80 GS were still new on the market and nobody had really figured out what they were. And there was nothing available. There was no goodies, no bits, no no panniers that were any good. There was there was nothing. Um basic crash bars were useless and so forth. mean but that you you made it. You just had to make everything. I mean I had to make my saddlebags, top box, everything. All kinds of stuff. I had to make the skid pan for it because the stocker was a joke, so on and so forth. It, it's it's okay to do that. But today, yes, you can buy anything you want, but I think the really really tricky part is to Decide what it is you need as opposed to what you think you should have, because it's really easy to to go by the the shopping list or you know you go into a camping store and you see all kinds of stuff and think, "Oh, I must have that." Well, they make it, so therefore I must have it, right? Mm. Well, if they make it, doesn't mean
0: you need it. Yeah, well, go look on any website about the mods you have to do to any model of, of bike. You know, you'll, oh, you'll look oh, at your model and then you have yeah, those lists of must modifications that you have to do.
3: No, 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 no. <laughs> Most of them
1: just adding weight, and that's more yeah. to pick up when you drop the bike. I, one of the the great things about now, though, is that you know you you can hunt out people who manufacturers who have got a huge amount of experience and time mm. invested in their products, and they make really good, well designed gear. Oh, no doubt. Um, and being able to go to them and just say, "This is what I need. This is a um, a situation that I need to solve. What have you got?" And know that there are companies out there that make such good kit um, problem solved. Mm. Um, I, I like that.
0: Yeah, and it can save you a lot of hassle too. I mean, some, some stuff is worthwhile getting, there's no doubt. And and why not if it's available, right?
1: Yeah, and
3: a lot of people aren't good at making stuff. Yeah, that's yeah, true. I mean, I know people that are barely able to figure which end of the screwdriver is which. So, I mean, you have that kind of person and there's no reason why they shouldn't go on a trip. Because I always remember this guy from Italy I met at one of our meetings. And he said he didn't even have a toolkit because he wouldn't know what to do with it if he had it.
1: <laughs> oh, that's that. making me laugh! I carried far too many tools. I'd never clue what most of them were, um, and but I carried them because I hoped I'd find somebody who did know what to do with them. Yeah,
3: that's more. I think that's more sensible attitude, personally. As
0: a matter of fact, Graham's digging right through his toolbox right now as we're talking. What are you looking for, Graham?
2: No, sorry, the cat just jumped up on the bench. I'm in the shed, but it's really funny. You should be talking about toolkits. Was right in front of me when I rode the uh, the KLR back to the UK last month. I thought, well, all the tools are in it. I really ought to keep them in it. So I made an extensive list and photographed all the tools that I carried. And so now I've got to start from scratch with a new toolkit for the KLR that's over here. So. Because what I did, I think I've said this before, when I prepared the bike, it's quite a little, we kind of going on top topic here, but when I was preparing the first KLR, for the first big trip, every single tool I used in the preparation, I wrote down in the front cover of my KLR manual what I'd used. So when it came to preparing the toolkit, so well, 10 millimetre socket, 12 millimetre socket, 14 millimetre socket, I knew exactly what I'd used to, for, for it. So um and and as well i won't go into the whole what i take and what i don't take toolkit but it was a very good way rather than just staring at your toolbox and thinking "Mm, what do i need i had all everything written down that i'd used it's very easy to and i'm doing it now i'm looking for replacement tools i'm looking at the big shiny socket sets which are covered in tinsel for the christmas purchase and i think well i'd love one but i'm not going to take a big socket set with me am i no
0: and the thing is, that's how you, that's, well, at least that's how I may make my kit is by using it and, and figuring out what I need, what works. And then you refine a little bit and you think, okay, I don't need those two wrenches. You know, I can get by without those. Um, and you sort of pare it down until so you have a nice workable kit. And I'm, I know we all do this and we are going off on an, another tangent here. But um, when I work on my bike for, for my basic stuff, I always use a toolkit on my bike. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
3: That's the one that comes out and gets opened up, and I use that. And if I have to go to the big red toolbox, I go, hmm, yeah. why am I doing this?
0: And do I need to add this? Yeah. Yes.
1: Jim, at some stage, I've, now I'm the proud owner of an F802. Um, I should get your list of tools from you because I'm still learning.
0: Oh, well, I, I can give you my list. Yeah, no problem at all. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. It's, I actually don't have a list, but I'll have to open it up and look at what's in there and, and give it to mm. you. I don't know if you're going to be impressed or all my tools roll up into um, something I, I sort of uh, reused from camping, which is just a uh, utensil roll, you know, where you put on your, mm-hmm. your, your spoon and knife and everything. Everything goes into that. And then it goes into a tube that comes off of a tractor that the, um, your manual goes with on a tractor. Yeah, mm. yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll explain it to you after. Anyway, Sam, you had a listener send in a question. Now, I, I, I didn't see a name on this. It, was there a name or is it just going with the question?
1: Um, if there wasn't a name, then that was my fault. Yeah, the, um, the chap who sent me in this question is um, a friend called Steve Nash. We've come across each other quite a lot over the years. And uh, he messaged me on Facebook with, um, with the question.
0: Well, why did not you set this up?
1: Okay, well, so Steve said, Sam, I hope you're well. I have an Adventure Rider Radio Raw question for you. I recently, with two friends, rode from the north to south of France and then south to north through the Pyrenees and across to Santander. Twelve days on the smallest back roads we could find and in the Pyrenees, mainly on trails. I was on a Royal Enfield 411cc Himalayan and we had perfect September weather.
0: Hang on, hang on a second. one second, Graham?
2: Sorry, I just realized I didn't bring my notes for this. So I was running to get my notes and I got my uh, headphone cable wrapped around my leg. <laughs> 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 I'm just going to go get my notes. I'll be right back.
0: <laughs> well, why don't you continue on? Graham knows what okay. the question is.
1: All right. Well, I'll go, I'll go back over the last sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on a Royal Enfield 411cc Himalayan and we had perfect September weather. Because of the crackdown on speeding in both France and Spain, we religiously stuck to the speed limits. But on returning home, one of my two riding partners got a penalty ticket. And then a few hours later, one dropped on my doormat also. We're all Institute of Advanced Motorcycle Riders, and two are blue light trained. It turned out, using the power of Google Maps and Street View, that we had both had a traffic light violation in a small village. The front rider passed through the light on green, and as I approached and crossed, it changed to amber. As it went from amber to red, the third rider went through. The third rider accepted that he'd taken a punt crossing um, on the change to red, but it appears that in France, it's illegal to cross on amber. That isn't the case in the UK where you can go. 90 euros lighter, which is about 85 US dollars, something like that, I could pose the following question. What is the strangest exactly here we go (laughs) what is the strangest traffic rule that you have come across on your travels and been caught by not counting corrupt cops and there we go yeah so thanks for this steve
0: I think it's a, that that's an interesting one. I don't know how many you guys have been caught by, but it's, even just that, I, I remember um, like the, the being caught by the the amber light. I, actually, I, I've been surprised how many people. It seems like lately have been going through red lights here. I, I, is it not a law anymore in British Columbia? You have to stop at a red light. So we were in town the other day, and I I think I saw two cars just go completely through the red light. And I'm thinking, has something changed
1: here? Jim, I saw that a lot in the States on this last trip, Um, absolutely gobsmacked. And I suppose about a year ago, I saw um, a video from somebody's dash cam where a motorcyclist pulled off on green and there was a a truck that went through on red Mm. and just wiped this guy out, just gone smithereens
0: it's yeah that's one reason when at an intersection I'll tell you for me as a rider um I don't take anything for granted i i wash I, I check both ways on my green yep. before I pull into yep. that intersection
1: oh, yeah. absolutely, absolutely me too. trust
3: Yeah, you you assume that somebody's going to do something really stupid, and it's up to you to stay out of it. I I think an accident isn't an accident. Somebody was not paying attention. Well, not going to be me if I can
0: help it. Well, how many times have you looked somebody? You looked at a vehicle, and you you're looking at them. They're looking at you, and then had them pull out in front of you.
3: Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. they don't see you. You you are not a car. Therefore, you are not in their mental picture of what things they have to
2: worry about. I know. So I remember my father saying to me before I was even old enough to drive, I was out in the car with him. And he said, always assume the driver coming the other way is doing the same as you. So, for example, if you're going around uh, over a a sort of a humpback bridge and you can't see what's coming the other side. If you're in the middle, then assume the driver coming away is also in the middle and you're going to hit him. But if you're paying attention and you're right over your side of the road. Uh, then obviously you can miss each other. I always think that's a good piece of advice. Assuming the other driver is doing the same as you. So if you're being careful, you're going to avoid them. If you're being reckless, you're going to hit them. <laughs> mm.
0: no, I, I'm sort of stunned that there's another one here. And I think we're going to – wow, this is tangent night. Um, but uh, driving down the center of the road on blind corners, I mean, wow. I mean right here on our island, we go around these, these – you know, they're tight roads with big drop-offs and, and it's dark. And people will be driving down the middle – of the road on a blind corner. And when you're on the motorcycle, you know what that feels like. And of course, I'm always prepared for it on, on the bike, um, always prepared for somebody doing that sort of thing. But that seems to be coming more of a, a standard. But but anyway, I, I know we're, we're going off here. The the the, uh, the strangest traffic rules. Grant, I remember you talking about, I think it was you mentioning one time in Australia, was it something to do with making a right-hand turn because you're, you're driving on the opposite yes. side of the road?
3: Um, Melbourne they have streetcars down the middle of the road still. So the method, and I'm just trying really hard to remember exactly how it works because you kind of get used to it and you learn how to do it. Basically, you can't just make a left turn across the streetcar tracks because that puts you out in the middle of the road. So what you do is you go to...
0: A right-hand turn. Sorry,
3: to make a right turn. I got to be sure I'm right. (laughs) Yeah, to make a right-hand turn, you go to the left-hand outside of the road, cross over to where the cars are coming across in front of you, and get in front of them then wait till the light changes and you go with them. You don't actually turn. You go into the, the road going the other way across. It's really hard to wrap your mind around it.
0: Hmm. It's hard to picture. Uh, I I can't, I can't see what you're describing there, but
3: instead of, okay, you're in the left-hand lane, the left hand, you're on the left of the road going to turn right. You don't turn right. You go left Mm -hmm. into the oncoming traffic that's sitting waiting at the light do a U-turn and then wait for the light to change and go with them to make your wow. right turn. That's, they do that's the sorry. same thing exactly in Taiwan. Same.
1: There's something very similar that happens to that in Spain too. Um, so there you ride on the um, on the right-hand side. And if you want to go left, in many of the roads, um, there's a slip road off to the right. And you take that and it swings you round um, and then you sit at what you ju- what's just turned into a T-junction, and then you wait for a gap and go across. When I was hitchhiking around Spain one time, um, I hitched a lift with a truck driver, and this guy was towing a super long load with um, uh, steel tubes that were going to be uh, legs for um, uh, oil rigs. He was going down to the oil reconstruction site in Cadiz, and he had to, to make a left turn so he pulled off on one of these but of course this load was so long he was actually swinging across both lanes of this this turn off and a car driver who had no idea about the swing of a truck um, pulled in next door to us and because the the truck driver was driving a British truck his um, driving seat was on the wrong side to be able to see that this car had tucked in and of course his mirrors because of the angle that he'd had you know been forced to pull in couldn't see this car either and when we drove off it was only the sound of breaking glass that made me realize that we'd driven over the top of this thing Mm. Mm -hmm. anyway i I took us on a sidetrack there didn't i um everybody survived by the way it was just the bonnet but inside i think there were six people in this tiny little car all with eyes wide open yeah
2: you gotta be careful
0: Anyone else with the
2: bizarre traffic? Uh, uh, well, yeah, and it's it's, it's it's along the theme of the turn thing again. This was in Oregon, and things may have changed because this was in two thousand and one. And so, with a friend, and we we're riding along. There's a police car in front of us. It was a single lane in each direction, and we were riding the way you do when there's a police car in front of you. And hang on a second. Police- How
0: do you ride <laughs> when a police car is behind you?
1: Well, you have
2: good posture you keep the right amount of distance you pay absolute attention to the road in front into your mirrors and you just ride like you were when you passed your test
0: nice. <laughs> so
2: anyway the police car in front of us puts on his left indicator to turn left and there was some oncoming traffic so we was plenty of room went down the right-hand side of his car between his car and the curb on our right. And we went down and as soon as we went past him, he put on his lights, took out his turn signal and pulled us over. It was absolute entrapment. He was waiting for this opportunity. He knew what we were going to do. We were on Colorado plates in Oregon and he pulled us over. Um, and he, uh, he looked at my license, my British license at the time. They were big green paper affairs and he couldn't make head nor tail of it. So he let me go. But my friend who had an American Colorado's license, he patronized and told him that he should know better. And in Oregon, it was illegal to pass a left turning vehicle on the inside. Even if there was space, you simply had to wait for them to make their maneuver and you couldn't pass them on, on the inside, which seemed like a ridiculous thought. And he knew this. And I bet that's how he got his kicks on a main road. Getting out of state mm. plates to, to to fall victim to his fictitious left turn, right? Uh, and so and, was, and yeah. you're,
0: ta- you're not talking two lanes; you're talking one lane with a paved uh, side to it,
2: right? Yeah, I mean it wasn't uh, it wasn't an urban road. This is out in in the in the countryside, I guess you'd call it. And mm. um, so you know, it wasn't like there were pedestrians or streetlights or, or pavements or anything like that, sidewalks or anything like that. It was, and, and it wasn't like we were having to bump up verges or anything. There was plenty of room.
0: Yeah, I think there's rules, there's rules in, uh, I think it's, I think in British Columbia, I think there's rules where you can, you can go around the car if it's, if it's paved on the side of the road, but not if it's gravel. I'm pretty sure that's the way it is. That's a weird one right there.
2: And it's, okay. you know, they love to Thank say ignorance of the law is no excuse, but how can you know the law in every single state, you uh, know, in every single country?
1: No excuse. Well, I mean, the perfect example of that is Burger. and I got pulled over and I can't remember what state it was in, but we had no idea that in some states in the US, it's illegal to do U-turns. Um, oh. In other states, it's perfectly legal. It and so we're, where
3: it is too.
1: We'd, we'd just come through a town, we were heading out of the far side of it, there were almost no buildings left. Great big wide roads. I mean, you could have had four lanes. This road but it was so wide. Um, um, dotted line in the middle, um, and we realised that we'd gone the wrong way. So Birgit did a U-turn, um, and I followed her. And seconds later, um, when we we're on the right road, um, I've got a cop car behind me, lights going, sirens going, and and these guys jumped out, guns drawn, and just the whole works. Couldn't believe it. I mean, but anyway. Um, we did get let off because I apologised very well, nicely you, in an pe- English accent.
0: People who, who pull your U-turns, they're dangerous, you know. You've got to pull the weapons mm-hmm. out for those. Save
2: them from we, themselves. <laughs> <laughs> it, it
0: depends, Grant was saying, it depends on where you're pulling the U-turn. Uh, like I know for Ontario, as far as I knew, and we, were, we were there this summer, um, that you couldn't do U-turns, yet we were in Ottawa, in the city of Ottawa, and this this car pulls up and, and makes a U-turn right in front. Of and I said to Elizabeth, I said, did you see that? They just pull a U-turn. And then we looked up and there's a sign there. that says, has a U-turn and a green circle around. It. It's like, what is this? You know, and, and then after that, we saw it everywhere.
3: Yeah, that, that means that you can do it there, but you can't do it anywhere else at all. That's it, that's where it's frustrating.
0: But it's a bizarre move, though, isn't it? Ooh,
3: the U-turn sure it is. It's crazy. Well, bizarre a, – a U-turn, I think, is perfectly legitimate, done correctly and safely and intelligently. The problem is there's idiots out there, but hey, there you go. I don't know. Every country and every state, every city even has different rules on it all. So basically I don't do U-turns unless I can't see any cops around.
0: I don't think I've ever That's done it. a U-turn at – at a busy intersection. I I mean, okay, I've done U-turns when nobody's around or nobody's looking. Sure. Okay. But not at a busy intersection, intersection. So I'm going to have to try this though, because it is legal there next time I'm there. Hey, before we, uh, I know we got, we got more to talk about here, but um, I want to do our plugs. Why don't we, why don't we pull out our plugs and and do those now and and we'll uh, we'll continue up with the rest of the stuff.
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Graham, I think you're just chomping at the bit with yours. And I know you have.
2: Can I I first explain um, the new plug format? This doesn't count as my forty-five seconds, right? Well, hang on a Um, second.
0: I don't know about that because, as far as I know, the time runs as you speak. I've already said the word plugs, and you're going to get forty-five seconds. Uh, uh, Let's let's grant you ten seconds. For your explanation,
2: I'm going to generously explain to the listener, taking into my own personal plug time, that we have decided as an experiment, unanimously, me and Jim, that we might try <laughs> and, and, and make the plugs short and concise, but mid-program. Therefore, everybody will catch them, but they won't be bored by them. So in a minute, my 45 seconds are going to start, and I'm going to concisely tell you exactly what I want to tell you um, before we move on to Grant and Sam doing the same thing. Are we ready?
0: Okay, Sam, what do you have for plugs?
3: (laughs) (laughs) 25 seconds,
2: done.
0: (laughs) No, you go ahead, Graham.
2: Okay, Um, sharp listeners may have heard a couple of shows ago uh, that I very briefly mentioned I was recording my third audio book, Different Natures. Well, that was two months ago. It is recorded. It is edited. It is formatted. It is now available immediately from my website. You can have it straight away. No more pre-orders. It's available. It won't be available on oh, iTunes and Audible probably till next year because they take a long time to process it. So that is uh, plug number one. Mainly, the new audiobook is ready for immediate delivery. And plug number two it's nearly Christmas. Think about those pannier box sets. Think about how wonderful and popular you would be if you gave that to your biking friend. That's all I've got to say for my plugs. Thank you for listening. Oh, this product may cause. Um, oh, damn it, I got it wrong. I meant to say this product may cause dissatisfaction with your lifestyle. Can I say that again? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just I did. thought you were going to give a state of California warning there. <laughs> <laughs> this product may cause damage. Well, that was very good. I'm, I'm impressed, Graham. That was, that was well done. And you had two in there, too the, the Christmas mm-hmm. one and the audiobook. But by the way, congratulations on finishing your audiobook. That's a, that's a huge um, accomplishment for you.
2: It is six products now on my shelf of things I have produced in my life. I'm very proud, very oh, yeah, happy. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. And, um, and and this this isn't a plug. This is just us chatting. Um, this this <laughs> book, Different Natures, the third book, um, is is simply that the worst selling of the three. There has to be one that is worth selling. That's just a fact. Uh, so, uh, but everybody who has read it said, "Well, I think it's the best written Well, Of course, it is. It's the third book. You've you found your you found your your style. I think the same will apply to the audio books. I found my reading voice. So. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that the same response will come from the people who buy it. And say, ah, this is the best audiobook of the three. That's what I'm hoping will be said, or maybe that will be.
0: Well, if Different Natures is the is the the lowest selling
2: one, what was the one before that? The the book I wrote before it, eh? yeah, or the, uh, was Eureka? That was Eureka. Eureka's so
0: Eureka middle. must have been crap because people lost interest. and They wouldn't buy Different Natures
2: ah yeah that's what it was just you know that's well actually different natures it says in the introduction and and this is true it says the, the first words when you write the book is, I wanted to call this book The Motorcycle Dairies, milking the success of the first two books. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had gone with that title through the whole of the writing it, and, and both Sam and Ted Simon said, you can't call it that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so there, there you go. If, if you hated Eureka and you didn't buy Different Natures because of that, you can now get Different Natures in the audiobook. You don't even have to read it yourself. You can sit back and let Graham read it for you. Because, uh, which yeah, I I just like. ignore it. <laughs> I just enjoy off, that. do something else. Great way watch to watch
2: TV. What's that? <laughs> you can have it playing. You don't even have to pay attention. You can watch TV. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, what have you got for a plug?
1: Oh, well, Graham's just given me the perfect intro to um, Christmas special offer, hasn't he? Um, and it, yeah, I'm sorry, it is that time of year. So of course, we've got to talk about these things. Um, listeners to the last show will have already heard about this. But um, if you didn't listen or just need a reminder, here we go. Um, I've got a Christmas special offer on the full set of my four books, and it goes until December the 6th. Now, we try to make this deal as fun as possible. And to begin with, Every order of the full set, um, full, full set of my books will come out Christmas gift wraps, and Burger's doing that and she's amazing at it. The copies will be signed by both Burger and I and there are hardly any um, books out there with signatures from both of us. Um, there's the opportunity to have the books dedicated and a message to whoever you would like if you're buying them for somebody else. And we're taking six pounds off the full set price, which is about um, $8, 80 something like that. And the final gem of the deal is that they're going to come out postage-free in the UK or for just £7.50, which is about $9, to the rest of the world, unless it's Antarctica or some such really way out place. Um, but if you're not bothered about signed copies, then just head over to the Book Depository because they do free worldwide delivery on my books anyway. And of course, don't forget that all of my books are out um as audio books from Audible and from iTunes, and I hope that was forty-five seconds.
0: Not even close. But, but <laughs> <laughs> you don't have a clock in front of you, do you?
1: On purpose. So <laughs>
0: that's that's good. But but you know, ignorance is no excuse um, for. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've screwed that up. But you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so I um, must have been close, though. Yeah, well, you went over a minute and fifteen, I think is what it was. Something. Uh, they're, right. going, they're
2: going to miss. They're going miss the important bit when Jim edits that out. <laughs> <a> strict forty-five <laughs> second <right>. rule. <laughs> I'll
0: Chop it off right there. And you're going to be, be going
2: on about Christmas wrapping, and no one's going to know about the deal <laughs> at the end. <of> the
1: <laughs> end. Oh, the, uh...
0: So you're going to be. You said burger is doing the wrapping. You're, you're not doing the wrapping.
1: No, I'm. I'm rubbish at wrapping presents. Um, but that's Birgit's a cop out, though, isn't it? Edit. Like, really, I mean, no, anybody can wrap. No, up. hang on a minute. Are we talking paper here or music?
0: Okay, let's hear you rap.
1: <laughs> no way. Because I'm, I'm, I'm
0: presuming you were you were saying there that you were that's better that's at the one. <laughs> well, there you that's go. Yeah, Christmas is coming but up, and. uh yeah, I mean, you guys, you guys all have have books and things like that. Grant has the videos out, so definitely, um, you know, we we should uh, put those links in the in the show notes again. You guys send me the links um, for the things that you have, and we'll put them in the show notes. And that way, if, if you're thinking of getting stuff for Christmas, definitely shop and you know buy some uh, books, support some authors, and and uh, and Horizons Unlimited, and stock up your Christmas tree. I mentioned at the start about Fresh Tracks being a sponsor of the show, FreshTracks.co.uk. I just want to mention here that what they're doing for uh, us motorcyclists, what they've set up there, is, is at uh, freshtracks.co.uk forward slash adventure space. Now, what this is, is a, a spot that you can you can go camp at, you can rent a cabin, and you can use their larger facilities. It's uh, apparently close to all the green lanes, which are the roads that you can ride on uh, off-roading, I guess, what we would call off-roading in, in North America, certainly in Canada. Um place to practice your riding skills leave no trace camping i mentioned the cabin they got a three meter by seven meter cabin all available right there close to london so drop by their website have a look if you're in the uk if you, certainly if you're near london and you're looking to get out check out fresh tracks and uh, let them know you heard them here on adventure rider radio freshtracks.co.uk forward slash adventure space now the only other thing i want to throw in here was about shirley and brian since they're not here um they've um their website is aussiesoverland.com.au. On that, you're going to find their books. They've got special prices for the U.S., UK, and Canada. And um, the Koala Bear Christmas Wrapping. You can't go wrong there. Drop by their website. Check out what they got. Buy a Christmas present for you or for or for somebody else. Um, so, Grant, um, what yeah, do you have?
3: have got all kinds of stuff. Uh, as always, we have the DVDs, which are still selling nicely. Uh, people still like have an actual physical product under their tree. We have lots of DVDs, which we can send out to just about anywhere in the world. As Sam says, there's a few places that, nope, sorry, it's just not worth it because they never get there. But we also have the downloadable version of all the DVDs in little bite-sized chunks, so you can have that. And we also have lots of events coming up. We've been busily working away here for the last little while, getting 2020 events open That'll be 20 years of Horizons Unlimited Travelers Meetings. Wow. That's a big thing for us, 20 years of events. Wow. Uh, We've got a couple of new ones as well. We've got Latvia, May 29 to 31, and we have HU Newfoundland, Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. That's uh, way out in the far end of the country, and it's a fantastic place, beautiful scenery. We've got a lot of people already excited about getting there and got a whole bunch of people signed up on the first day we opened registration. So have a look at that one and check it out. Um, Hum, the Hum Monashies is no more. However, the Hum Cascades is taking over. And that's going to be in the Princeton area of British Columbia. Fantastic mountain scenery. I've been setting out the tags myself and having a great time doing it. So I know you're going to have fun with that one. So if you're interested in the Hum Mountain Madness, come and check that out.
0: You were over the forty-five as well. Um, yeah, so, well, about uh, double, actually. So, <laughs> so, you're
1: only two seconds over. Don't let anybody watch According <laughs> to Sam's clock.
0: Hey, so <laughs> you, you put out the tags for the hum this far in advance? Oh yeah, absolutely. So the tag is you're you're fastening to like a metal thing to the tree, to a tree or something.
3: Actually, we're we're we are completely eco-friendly. We are putting a wooden tag out, held up with a piece of sisal, so that'll be completely completely disappear all by its lonesome in a few years. Um, but we put him out a year in advance, but, um, uh, we also will be putting more. out. I've got about 30 tags out and I've got 50 more to go, which I will be doing first thing in the spring. As soon as it's rideable up there, so it takes quite a while. It, it's about two weeks of riding to put all the tags out.
0: Mm, wow. What's sizal? Sizal is a kind of string. Ah, okay. So you, you expected
3: Jim to... Jim's
1: showing his age here, isn't he? I mean, he doesn't yep, remember he things, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Hey, Grant. We didn't know. Yeah. Jim's of the sort of nylon rope here, aren't you, Jim? Exactly,
0: yes. We, we didn't yeah, use no, string.
1: Yeah, no, is the real stuff.
0: String was <laughs> way out of date then. It's only coming back now because of all the environmental problems We're we're reverting to all the stuff that was eco-friendly to begin with that we went away from. Yep. Yeah. And you should
3: hear my mother going on. She's 97 and went through you know, all the depression and all the rest of that stuff. And she says, oh, there's all this talk about eco-friendly and recycling and stuff. We recycled everything. buy a piece of clothing and it went through six kids before you threw it away and the only reason you threw it away is because you couldn't see it anymore it was gone (laughs) <laughs> I know. It's,
0: it's, it's no mystery. It's, it's just been a, a very short period of time we've went to this disposable society. Uh, I know for working on vehicles, it, it's went from, you know, you used to rebuild wheel cylinders and, and alternators, and uh, now you don't do any of that. I mean, had we had to get an alternator there, and I couldn't get a rebuild kit for an alternator. They, they're only wanted to send me sell me a full alternator, you know, rebuilt, but not by me. Yeah.
3: yeah frustrating. Uh, There's actually a move afoot in the U.S. to um, fight all this non-recyclable stuff. They're doing everything they can. I can't remember the name of the organization, but they're doing a lot of work to lobby that there be laws made that stuff be repairable so that um, you can fix it. It's not just a completely disposable item.
0: Makes perfect sense. It really does.
2: I'm looking at the. I'm looking at my bench as I'm sitting here. I've got I had uh, this solar powered it's a, it's a, it's for it's for detracting moles from your garden and it's a spike. You stick it in the ground, it's got some batteries in it, it's solar powered and it vibrates and it's supposed to Uh, it vibrates in the soil and it's supposed to make the moles move on it just makes them dig another hole somewhere else in the garden but uh, it broke and so what I've got now is the little solar panel in the shed window and it's charging my rechargeable batteries which I put in my temperature gauge and and so I know what the time and temperature is in the shed. I've got one of those little things uh, that you put in the power charger of the of a car And it's got a USB charger and you charge your phone on it and it broke. It fell apart and it's now wrapped in insulating tape and been soldered back together. And so this shed is a a shed of recycling, I think. I'm I'm being quite green here. (laughs) It
0: it should be the way things are done, shouldn't it? I mean, I really hope that it rapidly goes back to that, being able because there's so much now that cannot be repaired. We wanted to get a radio just recently and we went to try and find a used radio. We ended up finding one, but this, this used radio is like probably 30 years old, but it sounds better and it feels better than all the new ones that we looked at were that were about $70 and we paid, I think. $7. $7. I think it was $7 for this one, which I thought was too much. <laughs> but, um,
2: just, uh, just plays music from the eighties though, does it? Well, you know, I would have loved that if I just <laughs> turned it on
0: to give the stream from the eighties, that would have been great. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no, it's, it's plays the modern stations, go figure. And they haven't went to Do you to know, digital. this fits,
1: this fits in with what we were talking about earlier on about, um, people having the skills to, to manufacture stuff for themselves, for their bikes. If they're, for example, as we were talking about kitting out to go on a long distance journey, um, people have got less skills because there's less opportunity to learn because stuff is yeah. thrown away. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, you definitely, um, you don't. Uh, and the thing is, it's not, I don't think it's a, it's a case of them not wanting, you know, the younger people nowadays not wanting to repair the stuff. It's because you actually can't repair it or you can't get parts for it. I mean, look what it takes to even take a, a computer apart nowadays. It's a huge ordeal. You know, to to pull apart a laptop, for instance, and in some cases you can't pull them apart at all with the, the Macintosh ones. But um, don't yeah. get me started, Max. <laughs> <laughs> I have
3: an iPhone, but the fact that I can't change the battery myself it drives me insane
0: oh you you can if you just take a a screwdriver and pry the top
3: (laughs) yeah there is actually a way of doing it but it's very very fraught
0: oh it's (laughs) you you have to put the suction cups on the glass and pull the yeah i mean it's just uh, that that is not that's repairable but it's not meant to repair is what it is
3: no exactly
0: Hey, did you guys have any, uh, did we cut off any stories about um, uh, dealing with uh, odd traffic
2: um, rules? Well, was that going to go on to sort of other experiences with police?
0: Yeah, yeah. Th- th- that's where I was interested in going with that is is talking about, um, yes, yeah, so any, any sort of run-ins with the law. So let's talk about that, you know, uh, stories of run-ins with the law. I'm really curious what methods you use if you have them for um, dealing with um, corrupt police or or with problems with the law. And, and I'm also curious, do you avoid law enforcement when you go into countries? Because I've talked to people before who said that's what they do. And they avoid them. They will not go to the police no matter what. Um, but if you're pulled over on the side of the road, for instance, and, and it's a corrupt cop, what do you do? Do you have a, a method? Um, somebody told me just recently, you know, they say something ridiculous in Spanish that makes no sense at all and just keep repeating it over and over. And um, that, that's a good method. But um,
3: there's better. Um, Peter Forwood actually has probably the best one that I know of for dealing with a clearly corrupt, um, a bribe type situation. And you have to know Peter to know how well this works. But basically his method is he starts talking in English at a high rate, fairly loudly, nonstop, and he walks around the cop. Are non-stop, and just keeps talking and talking and talking and keep walking around and around and around the cop, driving him absolutely insane. And part of the theory is to in, to annoy him and just get him to th- tell you to go away. And the other is to make sure that he's clearly losing money because he's not stopping somebody else that's going to pay. So he wants to get rid of you as well. So it's a, it's a different <laughs> philosophy. I, ca- I can't do it, but Peter can do it. <laughs> so there, there's what
1: there's that way um i can I, imagine I, peter doing that i've met him a couple of times and yeah he's he's somebody that would come across doing that as non-offensive as completely genuine as honest and open and um yeah no int- that's interesting his body language would be perfect for it
3: oh yeah he's absolutely correct for it so that is one way of doing it and another way of course is don't speak any Spanish, and if, although, of course, every once in a while you run into a policeman who speaks perfect English, as I did once, um, and then you're stuck. Um, play, play ignorant. Say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. There's lots of ways of dealing with it, but uh, sometimes you just have to suck it up and deal with it. I think the most important thing is not to pay if it's a bribe. If it's clearly a bribe, if you want you to pay on the spot, don't pay it. I, I don't know if that's always an option, Grant. Um. Yeah. It it can be. It depends on how you approach it because usually what they say is, oh, I will keep your – they want to see your license and insurance right up front. So you give them a copy of your license and insurance. You don't give them originals. You always have a laminated copy of each. I mean, BC driver's license is a little thing that's laminated. I photocopied it in color and laminated it. And, yeah, the uh, hologram doesn't work. So what? They don't know it's supposed to be a hologram.
2: But what about um, but when it's, they it's say passport?
3: Bad. You can't give them a fake passport. No, but they don't always do that. I've never been asked for a passport. Well, aside, I have, seen When they're hold when, when someone else is holding your passport, you're uh, very vulnerable. Yes, but the method there, I think, is to say, yes, okay, I will see you in court and we will deal with it there. And if that yeah, means I try to go to town in a couple of days, that's fine. You don't actually want to do that. But usually that means that they, they don't want to do that either unless they are legitimate. And if they don't want to do that either, they're going to tell you
2: to go away. But, you know, the, the then their, their comeback is going to be, OK, well, you're going to spend two days in a stinking Mexican prison until your court date comes <laughs> up. Whilst your bike is impounded impound- with your panniers and all its valuables, then exposed to whoever happens to have it. They, they do have comebacks for that. Just just bluffing no, that, well, I'll see you in court isn't necessarily the end of it.
3: No, it's always playing with it. I think you have to just work it and play it by ear, but basically try not to pay Um don't, you don't want to pay if you use the uh, copies of documents as your first step. If they want your passport, okay, they've got you over a barrel. But the method I use to deal with that is my passport is at the bottom of my saddlebags. It's going to take 10 minutes to get there. And they usually don't want to bother. Hmm. And you can argue that uh, if, if you're doing all of that, they start feeling bad about it, that you're dragging all this stuff out. And um, maybe they'll just kind of either get bored, get tired of it. They're not stopping somebody else who's going to be easier. Uh, Back to Peter's method. Um,
2: There's Mm. ways of dealing with it. I think you. Is your passport really at the bottom? Is your passport really at the bottom of your panniers, or you're just going through the procedure to get them to be bored? I'm not going to confess to anything. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a really good idea because obviously my passport is is instantly accessible. Uh, But yes, to say that's a really good I had never occurred to me to yeah and then when you get to the bottom of that pan you oh it must be in the other pan yeah
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> yes and you just take your time you're not in a hurry I think that's one of the things that I've noticed uh, that people get um, flustered when they get pulled over by a cop and they start trying to do things quickly deep breath slow down relax this is going to be an interesting experience mm-hmm. and again you're back to the we have a choice of how this is going to play out. This is going to be an interesting experience or it's going to be hit. Take your pick. Decide up front. And if you treat it as an interesting experience and just relax and take your time, you're not in a hurry. You know, have a nice day and whatever. Oh, that's an interesting car going by, you know. And yourself slowly out of your saddlebag and set it down tidily and neatly and waste the guy's
2: time. Uh, it's a good I mean, idea, actually. Plus, if they are being corrupt, I suppose there's always that possibility that a boss might pass or someone else who, yes. who might defuse the situation. Yes.
3: Well, another I've, one always to ask their name. When they right. give you your name, good, you say, hola, senor, and you reach out and you shake his hand. Yep. Uh-huh. Oh, all of a sudden, there's a change. There's a shift. It's a different, right. different approach because in, in the Latin culture especially – there's a, a big feeling of hospitality, Muslim as well. You have to be hospitable to strangers. So all of a sudden you're not a stranger that he's pulled over for doing something wrong or illegal or you're trying to make it sound like that. He's now, you're now a guest and they have to treat you differently.
1: I've almost never come across a corrupt cop. And when I've come across somebody who has been behaving potentially in what might develop into um, a corrupt way, um, by treating that policeman with respect, exactly as Grant has said, and then just talking steadily in my own language, with a a nice friendly expression um eventually they they literally do just get bored but it's that respect thing and respect just gets you out of trouble in so many different ways when when you deal with um the police and i mean for me the, the respect is important as a traveler's thing um i respect that i'm a guest in somebody else's country i respect that i don't know all of the rules I respect that simply I'm a stranger in a strange land and I also respect that there will be times that through ignorance, distraction or lack of awareness, I risk doing something wrong and breaking the law. Now, if I start off with those attitudes of respect in my mind and I do do something stupid or I get pulled over by an ordinary, upstanding, regular cop or by somebody who's a little bit wobbly, um, starting the situation off with that respect and that handshake and the name – That instant respect, it already starts to diffuse the situation. I think I've mentioned before that you know when I've been stopped at (laughs) roadblocks, I've just got off the bike and I've shaken them by the hand straight away and I've started straight off with, I am so happy to see you. Listen, I think I'm a bit lost. I'm really trying to get to this place. Could you give me directions? And so many times, just that simple thing has diffused the situation and whatever I've been stopped for in the first place has never proceeded.
0: Do you think there's a tipping point when you get pulled over, where where the you know a, a corrupt cop may be trying to to get something out of you, and you're doing the harassment thing, you know, basically stalling? Is there? Do you think there's a tipping point there where you sort of pushed it too far, and 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 then, and then it's done? Then you end up in, in finding yourself in trouble.
1: What's the worst that can actually happen? You can get arrested, and you can take get taken to the police station, and if you're being charged with a fine or for for some rule breaking situation then when you get to the police station and you know you're sunk then pay the fine yeah if you've been respectful and gentle and calm all the way along um then the chances are if if the situation is genuine and you pay the fine in the police station then you the chances are you'll be gone
3: yeah i think the most important thing is don't get mad as soon as you start showing signs of anger or upset uh you're screwed you have anger to make that thing at the beginning is this is going to be interesting and it's going to be an experience I can talk about, relax and work your way through it and just deal
0: with it. And of anger. course, this depends on the country too, because you don't want to do that in North America, walk around the cop when they pull you <laughs> over. No. Show,
1: show anger and fear to a, um, in, in that situation and you're digging yourself a hole. Show respect and calmness. And actually, it's an interesting experience. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. What about I've, you, Graham? Uh, Well, I've cut it down. I've got my notes here. I've cut it down to six different interactions with very different incomes. I won't read all six, but he- here's one which uh, was the unexpected. Um, I was the day after New Year's, I'd been at a party um, up in the north of England. It was a 300 mile ride back. And of course, it was quite cold, but it was one of those beautiful, bright winter days, and I had my heated jacket on, Neverford. And I was only about half an hour from home. And it's that: don't blow it now. You know, I was on a quite fast bike, and uh, don't blow it now. You know, keep calm. Don't don't do it. And there was this: it was two lane, dual carriageway, and there was a car in in front in the fast lane who was doing exactly 70 miles an hour and taking forever to overtake the vehicle. He was doing about 68 miles an hour, but he would not go over the speed limit. And there was about five cars behind him. I said, oh, for Christ's sake, come on, you know. He wouldn't let his little speedometer gauge pass the 70 miles an hour, because that would be illegal. And I'm, come on, come on, come on. And in the end, screw it. So I went down the middle, overtook the, the five cars on, on the inside, went down the middle and passed. And then it turns out that one of the cars I passed down the inside was an unmarked police car. So the unmarked police car thought, right, I'm going to get him. So he swerves to, to get me. And I see the lights go on in my mirror. It's like, oh, man. So he, <laughs> he pulls me over in a lay-by. Now, Mr. Self-Righteous, who was doing exactly 70 miles an hour, had also pulled in to the lay-by. And the cop sees me and then says, wait there, and then goes to the car that had caused this in the first place. Now, I've been sitting on the bike for probably two and a half, three hours. So I get up and I stretch and I check the messages on my phone while I'm waiting for him to come over. And when the cop comes out and speaks to me, he says, that's idiot says he's going to report me for a dangerous maneuver said he was holding up everybody in his overtake maneuver and now he's going to report me he said you saw what happened he said now if he does will you back me up <laughs> 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 absolutely officer you can count on me <laughs> beautiful and not only was i not busted but i was called on for his support should he need it? <laughs> Very funny. wow
0: last... you got a friend <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay well there was a, a case in uh, mexico and i was riding with a friend of mine who's uh, a canadian who's lived in mexico 20 years speaks perfect spanish and we'd been out riding and uh, we were very very close to his house we'd been up in the mountains we were coming back down to the coast and uh, uh, the the police uh pulled me over and uh, he kept on going so oh, thanks mate so I don't really speak any Spanish, so the police want to see my documents, and um, and are obviously quite um, quite irritated about something, and uh, my mate has gone a big circle, and then comes up behind him, and now, as a passing helpful citizen, is offering to translate, with no acknowledgement at all that he knows me. <laughs> anyway, it turns out, that I'm, I'm wearing uh, some combat trousers, which were a kind of burgundy, uh, black and white uh, combats. So I really liked them. and I don't have them anymore. And it turned out that the trousers I was wearing uh, were somewhat similar to uh, sort of a, not, I wouldn't say a terrorist organization, but to a, a sort of an underground movement. I mean, you've got a lot of uh, drug cartel um, uh, activity there. And uh, so my, they wanted to know that – well, they realized when they saw passports and documents that I wasn't part of any drug cartel or any underground movement. I was simply a, a badly dressed motorcyclist. So basically I was pulled by the fashion police. <laughs>
0: <Brilliant>. <laughs> and you may have liked those pants, but they angered them obviously.
2: They did, yeah. I wore them when I was removing an asbestos roof once and I thought I'd better not wear them anymore. They've got really dangerous qualities now. So, yeah, but I do miss them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you said you've never been pulled over by a corrupt cop?
1: No, I don't think I ever have. Um, or if I have, then it's never gone anywhere in particular. And the, the only time that I guess I came even remotely close to it was in Thailand. Um And in Thailand, back in 1993, there weren't that many big motorcycles on the road there. It was all tiny stuff. Um, And Thailand didn't have very many motorways. And I didn't know, or, yeah, no, I didn't know that it was illegal to ride motorcycles on the motorways. You know, I was just, well, it's a big motorcycle, et cetera, et cetera. And heading out of Bangkok, um, I found the entrance onto the motorway and I took it and off I went. And it wasn't long before I was pulled over by, um, the police and they were riding much smaller CC bikes than me. So it was incredibly embarrassing. I could have got away and left them standing, but of course I didn't. Um, And that was when I discovered that it's illegal to ride motorcycles on the freeways in, um, in Thailand. And, you know, these guys had the right paperwork and there was no attitude from them and they wanted a, they, they would, you know, wanted me a fine. And I was thinking, ah, do I go back to the police office station with them? But they proved their point. So I just thought, right, okay. Um, and I had made the mistake. Um, I was tired and I shouldn't have been riding when I was tired. Um, I had made the mistake of giving over my real driving license. Um, I never do that, never do it, but this time I did. So, you know, if if, if I, I'd sunk myself anyway, but the fine was stupid money, it was just tiny. So in the end, I thought, fine, just do it. But I mean, the other runs in with the police, one time Birgit and I were in um, Spain, we'd been um, riding through the Pyrenees. And we'd got onto the main roads and we'd um, crossed some double white lines in the middle of the road to get across to um, a petrol station. Um, And that's legal to do in France. Um, It's not legal to do in Spain and it's certainly not legal to do when you're within, uh, I think it's 100 yards of a traffic junction, which we were. And of course, what did we pull over in front of? Plumbing police car, didn't we? So these cops were just straight on us. Burger hadn't seen them because they were sitting behind me. Um, and she didn't think twice about it anyway because as far as she was concerned, it was perfectly legal to do what she did, but these cops were not happy bunnies because we'd been so blatantly doing it in front of them. But um, we just shook them by the hands, treated them with respect, apologised as soon as they explained what had gone on, and they just waggled their fingers at us and said, well, don't do it again. Now you're in Spain, it's a different country, learn the rules. And they climbed in their car and they went. Wow.
0: Yeah. So so out of all your, your travels around the world, you you haven't run into a cop that's blatantly trying to, or it hasn't went that far, you're saying. So, because, you know, what I'm thinking here is that it's sort of proof positive of what you're saying and the, the way you're handling it.
1: Yeah, I... Most of the police that I've ever come across um, have not been on the take. A lot of them have actually been interested and they've stopped me because they want to talk motorcycles. Um, If I'd gone into that situation aggressive and fearful, then I might have wound them up enough that um, they wanted something from me. But there was a a situation in Kenya. Um, I was coming um, from Uganda and heading towards Nairobi and police checkpoint, normally foreign motorcyclists, and you're very obviously foreign because you're on a big bike, um, don't get pulled over at these checkpoints, just get way through. But this time the, the, the policeman did. And this guy was immaculately dressed. You know, these khaki uniforms and the old British officer's um, hat and machine gun in his hands and all this sort of stuff. And man, this guy was being abrupt. And I thought, all right, here we go. I've heard stories about this sort of stuff happening. And he's just grilled me with his really abrupt questions. And then he asked the question, so um, what is this pointing at my bike? And I thought, well, it's bloody obvious, isn't it? It's a motorcycle. So I said, it's a motorcycle. And he said, no, this is a car on two wheels. And yeah, all right, I was carrying a bit of luggage. So he wasn't far wrong. And then his face just cracked up. And it turned out that he'd He'd been on the checkpoint on the other side of the town where I just stayed the night. And he'd stopped me because he wanted to talk motorcycles. And we stood and talked motorcycles for a few minutes. And then I said to him, would you like a ride? He said, what, on this? I said, yeah, come on, climb on the back. So within seconds his hat and his, his gun were in the hands of his mates and I took him down the road and we just had a buzz and I could hear him laughing all the way. When we got back to the police checkpoint, this guy got off and he was swagging around amongst his mates. But yeah, it, what could have been nasty just turned into pure fun.
0: Hmm. Well, it certainly says something for the way you're uh, you're handling you getting pulled over. Graham, yeah, uh, Grant, did you have any, any stories about run-ins where you've had to... No
3: Our first experience with it was in Mexico. I mean, we had only been on the road for, at that point, uh, two and a half months. We were still pretty green at the whole thing and knew really not very much. And we were riding down the Yucatan on – and the Yucatan in those days was like miles and miles and miles of absolutely dead straight road with nothing but jungle on both sides. I forget what the speed limit was, but I was definitely exceeding it because there's nothing – and all of a sudden, the lights go flashing and you know, get pulled over. Oh, my God. And this cop comes out. And he's like this uh, one in Kenya, immaculate, perfect uniform, radar gun, the whole thing. Show me my speed on the radar gun. It says you were speeding. And I, yep, okay, yeah, that's just about what I was doing. All right. Mm-hmm, you got me. Uh, so we went round and round a bit and had a discussion. And he came out with originally with a very large fine. No, I'm not going to pay that. That's too much. I'll have to figure something out so we worked it away and we got it down to about twenty dollars or something so i think the twenty dollars went into his pocket i'm sure it did however you got to give him some credit for having a radar gun having a nice car that's clean and shiny and properly set up and having the proper uniform and looking like a really respectable cop doing his job properly
0: um and, and, and and you were speeding
3: oh yeah i was speeding so I had no problem. I'm going to have to pay something, but just how little can I pay is the question. So, you know, you, you plead poverty, you open up your wallet and you look in and there's $20 in there and, you know, oh, I can't afford to pay this $150 or whatever it was that he wanted. Um, you just work it and you be friendly and be nice. And we chatted for like, it must have been half an hour um, talking about what we were doing and everything else and got it down to like 25 bucks, which at the time I thought it was a bit high, but hey, this guy's got me dead to rights. What am I going to do? So, we've hated it.
0: A lot of these stories, I think almost all these stories are things that you've done wrong, where you've yeah. actually broken the law, either knowing or not.
3: Yeah, I mean, that happens. But we did get pulled over somewhere on the west coast of South America. I can't remember where it was. I don't, it was pretty sure it wasn't chilly. Um, and I wasn't speeding. I was behind another car that was going slowly, and the cop, Oh, you know, foreigner, right? Motorcycle pulled me over. We went around and around and around and we gave him the, the uh, fake license and insurance and all that stuff and um, just refused to pay. said, we, we were not speeding. We did not speed. We did not speed. We did not speed and on and on and on. And uh, eventually he gave up and said, go away. Hmm. Okay. So, you know, if you know you're dead to write, you just very politely and very consistently keep saying, no, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And eventually, unless they got you dead to rights with a radar gun shoved in your face, let's
0: yeah, you know, just keep saying no. Yeah. I, I got pulled over once from um, a, a crooked cop. He was, um, and this is this is in, in Canada, um, but um, he, I was driving a, a fancy car and he thought I wasn't from around there and tried to say that I, I made a right on a red, but um, it was just one of those things. I was very respectful to him even even at that point, but um was very clear that, um, that I was being taken for a ride or I would have been taken for a ride if I wasn't there. I don't know how much leeway you have, um, in North America for something like that. And I'm sure it doesn't happen very often. This was the only time I've ever had it happen in my life, but I still remember this town. Every time I go into this town, I always think of it, um, of this one cop that, uh, that tried to, to, to screw me over. And I don't know if he was going for cash or I don't know what it was. I don't really know. I think he was just going to write me a ticket. So maybe it was back in the day when they used to keep track and and uh get credit for writing more tickets i don't know
3: well i know from a cop friend of mine that uh, while there aren't quotas it is suggested that you
0: should have several tickets today Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i've heard the same yeah graham you you had another story there
2: um well this is on a more serious note about corruption and stuff uh ukraine is a, a notorious place for corrupt police and uh I never really had a run in there when I was there in 2010. Uh, last last or this summer in fact, uh, I went up for my disastrous trip to Chernobyl and the only real victory in that in that disastrous trip that I went right through Ukraine without getting stopped by the police, which was uh, which is quite remarkable really. Uh, however, I recently heard of their because they uh, when, uh, they love to you know have their their speeding scams and they have videos of you. And, uh, and a fictitious uh, speed uh, in the corner of the photograph, which there was no way you were doing. In some cases, particularly on a KLR, my bike simply wasn't capable of the speed they said I was doing. But apparently, their latest one um, is that uh, they will ask you, uh, "Have you had? A, did you have a drink last night?" And if you say yes, then. They will um, fix their breathalyzer so that it shows that you still have uh, over the legal limit of alcohol in your blood. Uh, so it's uh, this is uh, I was doing a little research on on, on the internet as, as well as uh, speaking to somebody who had first hand experience of it. This was well when I say their latest uh, what I heard to be their their latest scam was the the fake breathalyzer. Uh, now it's pretty hard to. Uh, to, to, to um to, to, to deal with that. If if they're and then uh, and, and also a fine for that was four hundred euros. Um, wow. which is a, a hell of a huge part of your travel budget. And I guess yes, you can play the whole well, no, I demand to go to the police station, I demand a blood test or a piss test or whatever. But you know, if if that's gonna be the, the side of the road um pullover that you get, that's oh, that's a very uh, annoying thing to have to deal with, and, and a very time-consuming thing to have to deal with. So uh, yeah, not not a funny one, but just a, a genuine example of corrupt police and and their scams. I think I don't know what police get paid in Ukraine, but I think a significantly uh, large addition to their income is the money that they extort from motorists with their corrupt allegations of of um, illegal uh, things that you have done
0: you got to give them credit for ingenuity i mean that's the, both of those that you described the video they're they're both good but but do you, so do you spend any time thinking about or trying to figure out what your rights are cuz you just finished saying you know you could demand to do this can you demand it do you know you can demand that in, in for instance in ukraine
2: well it's it's like well i i guess if you've been stopped at the roadside and and they're telling you that you are over the legal limit of alcohol and you know for a fact that you aren't, then I guess you can process that. You can say, right, well, take me away. I demand a blood. I, I suppose you can say that. Um, but but do you, and, and I guess if you're faced with a 400 euro fine, and you simply don't have it or don't want to pay it, your option is to contest it. And, and, but uh, I do they're, they're, they're very, um, particularly in Ukraine, from the experience I've had, they're very, um, they're very intimidating characters to police there. They're armed, uh, which, of course, in sort of Western Europe, we're, we're not used to. And uh, and of course, they've got the language on their side and, and they're not on their own. Uh, and you quite possibly are. So it, it is a, a, a quite a intimidating situation to deal with. Uh, thankfully, it never happened to me, but I don't know how I would deal with it.
0: So they pull you over, then you you blow over, then you pay the $400 and they let you ride away?
2: <laughs> that's that's kind of <laughs> yeah, Having radioed their cops ahead in the next lay-by. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've, yeah.
1: We've it seems to me that from the right. stories that we hear that, that that most of the corrupt cops at this particular time seem to be in ex-Soviet countries.
3: Mm. They're not paid very well. It's the big problem. mm.
1: And the police in Africa. This this cop that pulled me over. Um, as there were other policemen in that roadblock um, that were doing things like smashing tail lights on the Matatu minibuses, and then going in demanding money from the driver because he was driving with a broken tail lights. That sort of thing. Mm. And you know that the police there, many of them have had to buy their jobs, and yeah. they have um, a quota every day that they have to take because they have to pay for the boss. And if they don't pay the bus, then they lose their job as policemen. And there, of course, there's a, a huge amount of prestige, et cetera, et cetera, that goes with that job. Um, and it's just the way things work. But motorcyclists um, very rarely ever came across anybody that had any hassle. But it, in the old Russian countries, it seems to be more and more stories coming from out of there with of this ilk.
0: Well, did you,
3: need... you hear about. Sorry, I was just going to say, I think we hear about the stories and they get repeated and repeated and repeated. I don't think it happens very often. I mean, Sam, you've only had a couple of incidents. I've had two that I can think of where we were actually pulled over for a ticket for doing something illegal. And that's kind of it. And, it's, and we've both done lots of miles. So I don't think it's something that people have to really worry about. What we've just talked about gives people some ideas and some things to think about, and that's really all you need. It's not that complicated.
0: I think it's a really good point. You, you know, I, I was doing an interview with Jeremy Craker, who's on a trip right now to South America with with his girlfriend, Elle, and um, we were just talking about news, and I was saying, we're asking him where he gets his news from. And he said, well, you know, he checks some on the internet, and I was asking, if he, does he get it from travelers and things like that? And one thing he mentioned was, he said, you know, the one thing is with, with the traveler sort of grapevine or, or getting it from travelers is that those stories tend to get circulated for a long time afterwards. And what we were talking about was a unrest in a country. So he said, long after the fact, those stories can still be fresh on people's minds and fresh on the stories that they pass along from, to one another. And I, I thought a lot about that after I was done the interview. And I was thinking, you know, that's the internet. I mean, that's, that's life nowadays. We hear these stories. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's not even just the internet, because I don't want to just blame the internet here. This, this is human beings. We hear a story that's significant in, in some way, uh, usually bad, but, but in, in some way. And we tend to tell the story over and over. And they get recirculated. I mean, you've heard them. You've heard them where they come around and you think, I heard that story, you know, 10 years ago. And it's being told to me like it's fresh.
3: Yeah, especially on the internet, you get that. You get emails from somebody. Oh, I just heard about this. Yeah, right. I heard that 20 years ago. Yes.
0: Yeah. Oh, you'll see somebody so, post a video, and then somebody will put a comment underneath it and say, that video has been around for three years. And, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. wow. But it seems like fresh news. And, th- and this is, I think, a, a lot of our, you know, a lot of things that shape our perceptions of things and, and create fear with us, um, you know, world over now.
3: Yeah, we're really good at remembering the bad. And we're much, much less good at remembering the good. Yep. That so often happens. That gets, gets exploded and blown up and our fears get wound up and we get wound up. Yeah. And like I was thinking earlier when we were talking about it, when you're talking to a cop, as soon as you get a little bit upset and frustrated and, and afraid, guess what? That transmits to them. And they start getting the same thing. So you get this feedback between the two of you and the whole thing escalates. Mm. So it's really important to stay calm.
0: Well, that's your typical argument, isn't it? I mean, that's what happens is one person gets upset and then that's reflected back and it just it's a feedback loop and it just keeps escalating until things get completely out of hand. So it's up to you to stay calm. Simple as that.
1: I made a comment just a moment ago um, about most of the scare stories coming out of the old Russian countries. And I was just sitting here thinking about the scare stories that come out of um, northwest Africa. Um, and that seems to be a fairly hot spot. And I'm hearing quite a lot of stories which are fairly up to date. But the people that are getting through these situations, are the ones who have done their homework and they find out which of the border crossings, for example, they're likely, most likely to get hassle from and they tend to be taking the smaller, quieter border crossings and having nothing like the sort of hassle. Um, and thinking about that made me think about when we were coming through Central America, for example, Um we very quickly worked out that there was far more hassle by doing border crossings on the Pan American Highway than there was by heading off um, inland and doing a, a tiny border crossing where you know the, the officials were sleepy, they didn't see very many overlanders, they were interested, had a chat, had a beer, a cup of tea, coffee, whatever, and on you'd go. Yet the people who were doing the border crossings on the Pan American Highway were just hassle after hassle, so they mm-hmm. were saying.
0: Stay Absolutely. away from the crowd, sort of thing. I mean, Graham said yeah. that before about the uh, the Lonely Planet guide. <laughs> you know, look at the Lonely, yeah. lonely Planet guide. And then the lonely you're gonna, planet, don't go. <laughs> you're avoid everything that's listed there.
2: Yeah, yeah. Take it with you, but make sure mm. that the places you're going to aren't So This is a popular place with travelers. Yeah, <laughs> don't <laughs> go. You. Don't go there. <laughs> yep.
0: Well, I I think we've uh, we've covered things on this one. We've uh, we've been. Uh, quite a while chatting here. I think it's time to, I was going to throw another log on the fire, but I think maybe we have to call it a night.
2: Uh, I've got a couple of little things I wanted to say. This isn't really a plug, or at least not for me, um, but I just wanted to mention this. Uh, we often hear when when Grant does his plugs, we hear him plug in the, the HU meets And I hadn't been to one for a couple of years. And uh, I meant to say this a couple of shows ago, but I haven't been on for various reasons. But I went to the HU meet in uh, in Italy this uh, this uh, late this summer. And like I said, I haven't been on one for a couple of years. And I forgot how good they were. To be around those like-minded people, to see the inspirational presentations and sometimes, I think, it, it, to be honest, I, I do get a little bit cynical about this whole adventure scene and, and sometimes the direction it goes in. And to go to somewhere like the Hub just is so refreshing and, and so inspirational and really restores my faith in this adventure bike scene. And for people who perhaps listen to Grant's uh, plugs without actually considering it, it really is a wonderful thing to attend an HU meeting. It should almost be compulsory. And, um, and I, I really recommend it. Uh, and I'd forgotten how good they are. And they're bloody good.
1: Mm. Well said, Grant. You, thank That's thank a good
0: you. point. It's, it's kind of going back to <laughs> grassroots stuff, isn't it? Because I, I've noticed that it seems like that um, everyone's there just to learn about overland travel. I mean, um, you know, it's, um, it's not like you're going to a show.
3: No, no, we very carefully don't want to do that. There's lots of events that are big and showy and splashy and lots of vendors are there and all that kind of stuff. We really don't do that. We are much more grassroots, ordinary people getting together and talking about something they love and want to be inspired by others. And I I think that's what works for it. We'll never be big. We don't want to be big.
1: Learning and sharing. It's great. Yep, absolutely.
0: Mm. Uh, Graham, you, you said you had a couple of things.
2: Oh, I, the other thing is, I know we don't do dedications or name checks or anything, but I just want to say a big thank you to Claire Elston and Sophie, jo- Sophie Jacobs for helping me with the preparation for this show. That's all.
0: Hmm. Very nice. Nice. Grant, did you have anything you wanted to say before we wrap things up?
3: Nope. I just hope everybody has a good time and gets out and maybe gets another one last ride of the season. And for those of you in the southern part of the, of the world um, – Welcome to summer. Yeah. Enjoy.
0: (laughs) Check your tire pressures. (laughs) Do all those spring things. Hey, Grant, this 20-year thing, that starts, I guess, next year, right, for January. Yeah. yeah. Our
3: our first event was 2001, so in 2020, it is 20 years. When Uh, when in 2001? uh, I'm trying to think what it was. It was June or something like that, June, July. I can't remember exactly.
0: That was in the UK. Yeah. Right, in your backyard sort of thing. Wow. That's right. Very cool. 20 years. Yeah. Well, that should be uh Yeah. Well, we're going to have to talk more about that uh, in coming up.
1: Yeah. Okay, well, Seems thank well you very be. much everyone.
0: Great job. Thank you. It's it's been great. That's been oh, fun. Nice one. Yeah. Well that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw and thank you to my co-host Sam Manicom. Starting with Sam Manicom, he lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his 8-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get ebooks at their website aussiesoverland.com.au. Graham Field lives in Bulgaria. He's the author of audiobooks and written books that chronicle his journeys. Uh, he also so his uh, t-shirts and other things that he sells on his website at gramfield.co.uk. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin my name is jim martin thank you for listening join us again next time oh and don't forget if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here drop by our website you can also look at the show notes i have some more information in here you can make comments on the show notes adventureriderradio.com